I would like to just say thank you to our servicemen and women who have served in our armed forces uh, to fight and protect our freedom, the freedom we enjoy, the very fact that we can worship in a facility like this uh, on a day like this is because of your efforts. And so we thank you. And we know that some have paid the ultimate price of giving their lives and we want to honor them and remember them uh, on this particular weekend. Today we are looking at God-honoring worship. Last week we talked about the whole idea of prayer, the prayer life of a church, and the evangelistic effort of prayer. That if we're not praying for the lost, then we're probably not witnessing to the lost. And so it only makes sense that you would move, I guess, from evangelism into instructions concerning worship. Now this is not a treatise on worship. It is not all-inclusive of everything that should be included in worship, uh, but this is one aspect or some aspects of worship that should be a part of a worship service as we approach a worship service. When worship becomes more about the participants than the one we are gathered to worship, we will not have God-honoring worship. When it becomes about me and to please me and to satisfy me and to fulfill my needs and I walk out feeling unfulfilled, uh, are we here to have my needs met or are we here to worship and magnify the Lord? So I guess it's a matter of perspective. What are we coming for? Uh, yes, we receive from the Lord, but we are giving to the Lord too, even what we did this morning in God-honoring worship. I came across a story that just reminded me of my own childhood that uh, talked about Sandlot Baseball, and he says, there at the corner of Rudy and Edgewood Roads in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, not unlike the pickup games that took place in streets and lots all over the country every evening in the summer. But this time, he said, we were arguing about a call at home plate. You ever have that in Sandlot, arguing over a call at home plate? No one hires umpires for these games. The judgments are made by personal honesty or committee. <laughs> Jack Angelo said he was safe. Eddie Kramer and I both know he was out by a country mile. Safe, out, back and forth, safe, out, back and forth. It seemed everybody on Eddie Kramer's team agreed with us. Jack's teammates backed him up. We finally settled it with a flip of a coin and nobody was satisfied. Baseball needs umpires to hold us to the proper standard. We need God's word to hold us to the standard of what should happen in a worship service. You know, and I know in our culture today, our culture has changed so much that people are changing their theology based on culture rather than the other way around. Our theology should be telling our culture what is right and appropriate and good and not the culture telling us. But we have more and more people and churches abandoning God's word and saying, I'm going to do it this way because that's what's popular in culture. And Paul oftentimes went against culture, and he did here in this teaching as well. So the first thing we see here in finishing up about prayer is the attitude of men in prayer. Notice in verse 8 of chapter 2, 1 Timothy, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. 
It was a common practice for Jewish men to lift their hands in praise and with their palms outstretched. And oftentimes, before they would go to prayer, they would wash their hands. They would do a ceremonial washing of the hands because they wanted to have clean hands to show the attitude that was symbolic of their heart. And so they would wash their hands. The whole idea of holy hands is a holy life. Clean hands, a pure life. That God wants a pure life. We don't come before him and just utter words with a corrupt, polluted heart. We have to have a clean heart. It's a blameless life. In Psalm 24, verse 4, it says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Clean hands is a blameless life. There are many postures to prayer. We can stand, we can kneel, we can sit, we can fall down on the ground, we can raise our hands. All those are postures, but God is far more interested in our attitude than he is our posture, our attitude in prayer. And then he goes on to say that we are to pray without anger or disputing, that we're not holding grudges against other believers that we're clean, that we don't have unresolved issues. All of us should strive to be peacemakers and not troublemakers. Quarreling, disputing, bickering, disagreeing about stuff to the point that it even causes disruption in a worship service. In Mark eleven twenty five, 25, it says, whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So that is to be our attitude, holy hands without anger and disputing. We come before the Lord and we offer those prayers. And that's what should set the pace and the tempo for worship. I have seen prayer meetings ruined before they even got started because of negative attitudes of people in the prayer meeting. We have to have the right attitude when we come before the Lord in prayer so that we can worship him properly. Next, he goes on and he talks about the appearance of women in public. Now, why doesn't he address the men in this? Well, because I think in this culture, the problem was with the women. And so he addresses women because women were dressing very provocatively, coming into worship. You see, the challenge here for Timothy was to teach and encourage women to dress in a way that was different than the culture. Because what was happening in the church in Ephesus was, do you remember the false god they were worshiping? Aphrodite, Diana. The worship of Diana in the temple of Artemis that encouraged sexual immorality. She was sexually provocative. If we were to put a picture of the statue of Diana, it would be so inappropriate we would all blush. It wouldn't even be appropriate in, in a mixed crowd. And so Timothy is challenging women to say, you know what, when you come into worship, don't come dressed in such a provocative manner that you are distracting people that they're noticing you instead of the Lord. And they're not worshiping the Lord. And you become a stumbling block in this service. It's not harsh, it's just saying that that's the way it is. That's the way it was in the culture. They were worshiping these provocative images which caused sexual immorality. Notice he uses the word here. He says, dress modestly in verse 9. I want women to dress modestly. Another version says, adorn. It comes from the word cosmeo, which means cosmetic. 
that you adorn yourself. It means to arrange, to put in order, or to make ready. When you get out of your bed in the morning, hopefully you make your bed. You arrange the blankets so they're nice and neat. And he's saying, arrange your clothing so it's nice and neat. And we know what is appropriate and not appropriate, at least we should, based on what the scripture teaches us. And hopefully what our mothers and grandmothers have taught us what is appropriate. Proper clothing is appropriate for worship. So then clothing is important for worship. Some people say, well, it doesn't matter what you look like. You just come. God's only concerned about your heart. But you know what? What is in my heart determines what I put on my body, right? When we take care of our body, it's what is in our heart will impact what I put on my body and how I dress so that I'm not taking away from the Lord in any way. It's respectable apparel. The word here also comes from the noun cosmos, which we talked about in the Gospel of John, cosmos, talking about the world. But actually, there's another aspect of the word cosmos, which means order or system. The opposite of order or system is chaos. And he's saying, you create chaos in a worship service when you don't order and dress appropriately. Clothing that is marked by suitability, rightness, or appropriateness. We dress appropriately. Character is more important than clothing, but a person of character will never have a problem with clothing and knowing what is appropriate to wear in a worship service or anywhere else. He's saying that these type of women will behave themselves well in their earthly citizenship. Last week, we looked at a verse in Proverbs 31.22 when it says, Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Respectable dress shows a respectable heart. You know, one of the things that the Bible gets criticized for in Christianity is that women get put down. Can I tell you it's the exact opposite? Women are actually elevated because they were suppressed in the first century in society. Jews and Gentiles both were oppressed women, but God raised them in the gospel. Women are actually have greater freedom in the gospel than they did outside the gospel. And so therefore we should take note of that and pay attention to that. He goes on to say, I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Decency and propriety. The appearance of women in public Notice here, it's not wrong to wear jewelry. Some people, oh, you shouldn't wear jewelry. Well, look what the Bible says. The servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. Nothing wrong with jewelry as long as it's not to excess that it begins to take away from God and to focus on the Lord. And so that is vital. Here's another verse. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver in the Song of Solomon. So again, it's understanding context that we don't take away from what God has given us in our worship. Here's one more. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. So again, nothing wrong with jewelry and those kind of things as long as it doesn't take away from our worship. 
Because again, listen to this, how prostitutes dressed. In uh, his work, The Sacrifices of Cain and Abel, the first century Jewish philosopher Philo described a prostitute. He portrayed her as wearing many gold chains and bracelets, with her hair done up in elaborate and gaudy braids. Her eyes were marked with pencil lines, her eyebrows smothered in paint. She wore expensive clothes embroidered lavishly with flowers. The wearing of expensive clothes and jewelry that drew attention away from the Lord was obviously inappropriate for women in the church. They were supposed to be demonstrating a humble godliness, not appearing like prostitutes or showy pagan women. It was interesting, yesterday afternoon, Ryan and I went out uh, for a little kayak ride, and as we were kayaking, we were talking. And he doesn't even know that I was going to say this. I didn't know I was going to say it. Uh, But as we were talking, uh, he said to me, in the conversation, he said, you know, he said, I, I, you, I can tell certain females that I don't want to pursue at liberty based on their dress. I thought, good for you. And I said, what is that? What kind of dress is that that's inappropriate? And so we talked about it and how important it is. So let me just ask a question. What are your motives in dress? I think that's what he's saying. Are you attempting to attract other men or entice them? Or is it to show your humility and desire to be holy? Is it to demonstrate your love and devotion to your husband if you're married? Or is it to promote the beauty of womanhood? That should be the motive behind what we, we do. All right, let's move on. How about the attitude of, in women of piety? Again, verse 9, that women dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Here's a little quote from a uh, booklet uncovering the truth about modesty. He says, modest is having a regard for decencies of behavior or dress, quiet and humble in appearance, style, etc., not displaying one's body, not boastful or vain, unassuming, virtuous, shy, or reserved, chaste. There's a humility in their demeanor. A godly woman would be embarrassed or ashamed if she was guilty of distracting others from worshiping God. In other words, she'll go the extra mile not to cause a man to have lustful thoughts or yield to a temptation that she caused. She would never want to be the cause of another person's downfall into sin. Here, he goes on to say not only modesty, but self-control, especially in regard to sexual passions. Plato in the Republic called self-control one of the four cardinal virtues is self-control or sober-mindedness. Even Paul had to tell Festus when he was giving his testimony, he said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, saying, I'm in my right mind, I'm sober-minded, I'm self-controlled. And it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. He goes on to say, professing godliness, this woman is concerned with what God thinks about her dress more than what man thinks. She also seeks to be an example to younger women 
by her dress that her faithfulness to God is of utmost importance to her. You know, and with the whole transgender thing, we have people wanting to dress the other way. And so it's still a big issue, I think, even in our culture. Well, he goes on to talk about authority of women in the church. In verses 11 to 14, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So how are women to learn in the worship service? Now this is in relationship to a corporate worship service. He says in verse 11 that they should learn in quietness and full submission. So is that only for the first century? Or is that for the 21st century as well? Well, I think scripture is timeless in this instance. I don't think it's just for the first century. I think it's in totality. Uh, so what is the answer to learn in quietness? Well, let's break it down. To learn is discipleship. It comes from the word disciple. The role in public worship for a woman is one of learning. Now, in first century Judaism, listen to this, women were not held in high regard. They were allowed to be in the synagogue for worship, but they were not encouraged to learn. So here Paul is encouraging them to learn. They weren't encouraged to learn in the first century. Many rabbis refused to teach women and felt like if they did teach them, it would be like throwing pearls before swine. So again, the gospel has actually elevated women. The women in the Greek society were not viewed much differently. William Barclay writes, The respectable Greek woman led a very confined life. She lived in her own quarters in which no one but her husband came. She did not even appear at meals. She never at any time appeared on the street alone. She never went to any public assembly. Interesting. But what does this really mean? I think it's telling us that a woman should learn in quietness. He's talking about peaceableness and full submission. Not that they can't teach ever, because we have ladies teach, ladies Bible study, and that is biblical and right. Um, ladies can teach Sunday school, um, lead things, pray, be involved in missions, uh, all those things ladies can do and should do and are instructed to do. So if Paul is teaching that women were to maintain absolute silence in the presence of men, he would actually be contradicting himself because the letter in 1 Corinthians gave a similar instruction. But he did not say women could not utilize their speaking gifts. So women have been giving speaking gifts as well. It's just the context should be outside of the corporate worship service. It is God has given that to men to do. Because he goes on to say a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. The idea of submissiveness here is the idea of to rank under, and it talks about order and authority. 
Let's think for a moment about our military. In the military, rank has to do with order and authority, but listen carefully, not value or ability. A colonel is higher in rank than a private, but that does not mean that the colonel is better than the private. It only means that the colonel has been given more authority than the private. Imagine the chaos in our military if there was no order or rank of authority. And Paul is saying you're going to have chaos in a church service if you don't have an order of rank of authority. And God has established that. That's not my idea. It's his. Children are in submission to parents. Employees are in submission to their employer. Submission is not slavery. It is rather recognizing that God has placed an order in the home and in the church and in the marketplace. When the authority is exercised properly, a person submits to that authority with the right attitude. Guess what happens? It all works well. It really does. So when he says, I don't permit a woman to teach in verse 12, he's not saying not to teach at all. He's saying in the context of a worship, corporate worship service, that women are not to teach. It's to be a man. And we're going to look at that when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we look at the whole qualifications of leadership within a church and how that leadership should function. It's vital. Let's take a peek, though, at some women in the Bible that demonstrated this submissiveness. Deborah refused to lead a military campaign against the Canaanites and instead allowed Barak to lead. Several of these come from uh, John MacArthur's commentary on 1 Timothy. He says, no women ever served as priests in the Bible. None of the books of the Old Testament were authored by women. No woman in the Old Testament had a prophetic ministry, giving messages to people like Elijah or Elisha or other prophets. There were some women like Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, and Isaiah's wife that were called prophetesses, but none of them had a permanent calling to that office. Miriam, Deborah, and Huldah only gave one recorded prophecy, and Isaiah's wife gave none. She was called a prophetess because she gave birth to a child that had a prophetic meaning. A fifth woman mentioned as a prophetess, Noadiah, was a false prophetess. And while God spoke through women on a few limited occasions, no woman had an ongoing role of preaching and teaching in the scripture. And that's what we have to come back to, not culture. Not what culture is telling us. It has to come from the scripture. So the New Testament, like the Old, teaches the spiritual equality and differing roles of the sexes. Now I want to look at a verse that many people will go to to say, oh, men and women have equal authority within the church, but it's the wrong context and the wrong verse. Here's a verse, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So people will turn to this and say, no, in the gospel, see, we're all equal. So men and women can serve in whatever capacity God has given. However, that is not the context of this verse. Saucy writes, the interpretive question 
In Galatians 3.28 is this. What is the distinction between male and female which is overcome in Christ? To phrase it another way, in the light of the apostle's statement, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is the oneness which male and female share in Christ? What is that oneness? We would like to suggest the answers to these questions do not concern the functional order between man and woman at all. Rather, the issue, as in the other two pairs mentioned, Jews and Greeks, slaves and freemen, concerns spiritual status before God. In spiritual status, we are one. Doesn't matter. But not in function. We've been given a different role and responsibility. To impart the issue of functional orders of human society into this passage is to impute a meaning that is not justified by the context. There is therefore no more basis for abolishing the order between man and woman in the church from Galatians 3.28 than abolishing an order between parents and children or believing citizens and rulers. For all, we're all one in Christ, in or out of the organization of the church. So this interpretation is further strengthened by the general terms male and female. Now, let me say this. I know this is a little bit technical, but I just want you to bear with me. In every Pauline passage that Paul writes, dealing with functional roles, the terms man and woman, husband and wife appear. Why, if the apostle is speaking of the functional relationship, which some would claim, is he using male and female in this passage? He does not say there is neither man nor woman in Christ rather than male and female. Oneness in Christ did not obliterate the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, and it doesn't remove the functional differences between slaves and masters. In no way, though, does the New Testament treat women as spiritual inferiors. The first person, Jesus, revealed his Messiahship to a woman. Jesus healed women. In contrast to the prevailing practice of the rabbis, he taught women. And so women are an important role in the ministry. Extremely important. As in the Old Testament, though, spiritual equality does not preclude differing roles. There are no women pastor teachers in the Bible. No evangelists or elders in the New Testament. None of the authors of the New Testament were women. The New Testament nowhere records a sermon or teaching of a woman. And I share this with you because there are many denominations who are abandoning this teaching to the detriment, I believe, of the health of the church. And so we need to embrace the scripture at Bethesda Church and say this is what we're going to hold to. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. 
He goes back to the order of creation all the way back to Genesis to say this was established in the order of creation because some people will say, oh no, God changed all that once sin came into the world. The order, the authority has all been changed. No, see, Adam and Eve were prior to the fall. He's saying, no, sin did not change that. God established this order before sin ever came into the world. So he says, Adam was firm force, formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Adam was just as guilty, though, because he was disobedient to God. But the order of creation has been established, and God ordained this authority when he established creation. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. This is probably one of the hardest verses to understand in Scripture, one of the harder ones. Um, and again, I went to John MacArthur's commentary to, to try to get understanding of this verse for, my, for myself. And here's what he says. Paul does not teach, or Paul does teach, that although a, uh, a, a woman precipitated the fall, women are preserved from that stigma through childbearing. A woman led the human race into sin, yet women benefit mankind by replenishing it. Beyond that, they have the opportunity to lead the race to godliness through the influence on their children. Because the primary influence in children is women, mothers. And so we want to recognize the value of women. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. It's a little different uh, material than you would expect for God honoring worship. But there were specific issues that Paul told Timothy to deal with in the first century. Some are more applicable to first century than now, in terms of maybe the way women dressed. But nevertheless, the principles are there. Um, that women are to dress appropriately, godly, humble, modest. And also the order in a worship service that God has given, that God established it's equality of person, but diversity of function. It's vital that that is carried out. Our culture is screaming for something else. And it's to the detriment of the church, in my opinion. When we begin to abandon scripture and say, well, in the moment of convenience or because culture says we have to come back to the scripture, and, you know, one of the things that Timothy was told by Paul in 1 Timothy 4.16 was to watch your life and doctrine closely. We have to do that. I am concerned 
about certain denominations who are seeking to abandon what God has established. And that's why we share that today, because we have to be committed to what the scripture says, even when it's not popular. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior. The biggest concern for you is not your dress, it's your heart. You don't know the Lord. And God's desire is that you would know him personally. And if you have questions about that, we'd be glad to pray with you after the service, how you can have a personal relationship with God. I am thankful for the godly ladies we have in this church. We have many. And I'm thankful for each of you. And for your investment in the body of Christ, because they're involved teaching and serving and ministering in, in so many capacities. And I'm grateful for each one of you. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.